0: Uh, Hi guys, my name is Shane McCauley and I'm your host for today on this very special episode of On The Step. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and today I'm lucky enough to be interviewing the man himself, That Mallard Guy. i have all been listening to and loving this podcast, about All Things Seaplanes. But some of you may be wondering, who is this guy? Who is the Mallard Guy, this legend? Well, he's 30 years old, he lives in Darwin, Australia. He's a turbine Mallard captain father and husband, seaplane and flying boat enthusiast, he's on the board of the Australian Seaplane Pilots Association, and just an all-round good bugger. So On The Step is all about float planes and flying boats. It's my passion, and I know that if you're listening, then seaplane's your passion too. If that's the case, tell a friend about the show, share it on social media, and review it on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy, it takes about a minute, and inspires Dan to keep up all the hard work us to keep listening to this great podcast okay guys this is the real deal ditch the life jackets don't worry about pumping the floats today we're going to play it fast and loose it is time to get going on the step
1: right engine is turning 12% fuel a lot
0: So Dan, thanks first off on behalf of all the listeners and the seaplane community, thanks for all the hard work you're doing on this outstanding podcast for all things seaplanes. I've personally found it extremely entertaining and educational. Welcome to your own show, On The Step.
1: Thanks very much, Shane. I really appreciate that uh, beautiful intro, mate. It's going to be fun to edit this one up, mate, and have a, a guest host as yourself I thought I got rid of you when sorry, uh, I did your episode a while back, but uh, here we are again having another chat.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I'm one of those guys actually when I go onto your Facebook it says you are Dan's biggest fan um, <laughs> and you can click on something and it sends you a star or something. So no, it's great, mate. It's, um, after listening to the podcast, it's been fantastic and um, I'm sure all the listeners are pretty keen to, to dive in a little deeper into um, yourself and, and where you've come from and, and how you came about to be the Mallard guy, so do you want to dial it back and um, just just a brief sort of uh, childhood growing up in, in Australia? Was it actually Geelong that you, you grew up in?
1: Yeah, mate, absolutely. So yeah, um, first of all, it's going to be really hard to uh, just to kick the feet up on this one and, uh, and and sit back and relax, let you take the reins. Um, but mate, yeah, really appreciate it and um, thanks very much for the kind words about the show. I'm glad that you're loving it and glad and it's inspiring you with all these stories. But yeah, my story started off um, back in Geelong. Um, growing up, my old man was a commercial uh, pilot, but was mainly in the police force. My grandfather was a uh, Spitfire pilot and uh, a Tiger Moth instructor in World War Two, and my uncle was also a Qantas for forty years. So family um, ties there with aviation for sure. But you know, when I was when I was actually growing up, I never really got too much into aviation. Um, My parents had had split up when I was quite young, so I wasn't living with Dad, although I did see him fairly often, um, and he was in the police force, like I said. So um, it wasn't until I was about 12, 13, where Dad went out and bought a 172, and um, he just did it for a bit of private use, wanted to get back into flying, and that kind of eventuated with a few little trips with my sister on weekends. Um, But eventually Dad kind of saw a little bit of a hole in the market for a, a seaplane at the Geelong waterfront uh, we have a really beautiful nice uh, north-facing Geelong waterfront there was a seaplane there I think about 10 years prior that it had finished up and, and dad wanted to get one running again so uh, he upgraded the 172 to a 206 and after a lot of hard work he uh, started his business Bay City Seaplanes and that was around about when I was uh, kind of 15 sixteen so at the end of my schooling life the idea of becoming a pilot was becoming more and more especially when I didn't really know what I wanted to do uh, once leaving school and um, you know got to finish finish year 12 and uh, went down to the local airfield which was literally five minute drive just two turns out of my home went and um, had a chat with them and uh, you know took a loan out and off I went yeah
0: wow well, and and uh, did your sister any uh, show any interest in flying at all
1: um, not really, no. She she has recently actually. Um, I think it's always a it's a big step kind of going out there and getting your license done, and you know being that young, I, I was kind of had nothing else to do. I was working at Coles filling shelves at the time, and yeah. um, just decided that you know I'll get this loan out and uh, put it towards some flight training and, and kind of go from there.
0: That's outstanding, mate. Yeah, and I think it's um, especially in this day and age. You know, people, people. A lot of people say, you know, you're lucky to become a pilot or this or that. But it does take a lot of commitment, and, and like you say, going to go and get a loan when you when you're that age to to head off down a, a path like that's quite a commitment. Eh?
1: Yeah, it was. You know, it was, I took twenty five grand out back then. It was this was two thousand and eight, which didn't cover it all, and um, was still left with a bit of debt uh, afterwards. Um, but yeah, I had to continue working at Coles. So I was mixing that in a bit of night work and and with all the flight training and it yeah, ended up taking a year and a half to get my commercial license and you know one of the one of the factors that I went into aviation as well was dad kept kind of telling me that you know there's an airline crisis and there's pilot shortage you know this was just before the GFC hit um, so yeah I was like oh, okay right oh dad says there's heaps of jobs going in aviation I might give this a crack and then yeah all of, all of a sudden the GFC hits and. uh I've got my commercial license with a bit of debt and uh, there I am still stuck in shells because there's no jobs around.
0: Yeah, and then that pilot shortage finally arrives in about 2018, 2019 and lasts all the 12 months.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. this where we are now.
0: Yeah. Hey, and did you get any any cool stories off your grandfather flying in the Spitfires in the, in the war?
1: I didn't, unfortunately, mate. Um, my memories of my grandfather, unfortunately, were kind of in a nursing home. Um, he'd had a, suffered a, some strokes later on in his life and um, didn't really get to have uh, much of a relationship with, with him. You know, I want to sit down with Dad one day and, and kind of go through some of his log books because I know that Dad's still got them and, um, you know, kind of find out more about um, his career in, in, the, uh, in the war there would be would be very interesting.
0: Yeah, that'd be awesome if you get a hold of the logbooks. There'd be definitely be some uh, interesting things you could probably piece together a few stories from that. Yeah, and and so what happens in Geelong? Like, I've not heard much of, about Geelong, and and let alone float flying there. Like, what you said, there was an operator before your dad. That obviously stopped happening. What what led your dad to believe that there was a market for seaplane flying there?
1: Yeah, so I'm not sure about too much about what happened before with that other operator. I I think actually from memory, I think the guy, the owner of the business may have got um, some sort of cancer and um, had to end up, you know, finishing the business that way. But I'm not too sure, but that's just a distant memory. But um, yeah, I I, I don't know. I think Dad, you know, he was in the police force for 23 years. He always loved flying. He was a commercial pilot from a very early age, I believe. Um, Did a bit of um, helicopter and fixed wing stuff in the police air wing. And, um, I think he just wanted to get out of the police force and do something new. And he saw this as a potential, he had no float experience. Um, you know, he wasn't really either much of a water guy, so I'm not really sure what pushed him. I'd, I'm still trying to work him up to get him on the show as well, to have a bit of a chat about yeah.
0: it. <laughs> oh, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Mate. That'd be fantastic.
1: Yeah. So he kind of went out on a limb there and, and started this company you know, he went into a lot more debt than I did to get my license to get this thing up and running and, um, yeah, after a lot of hard work, got that business started, and it, you know, Geelong's it's not a huge tourist destination. I mean, just past um, us we have the Twelve Apostles, uh, the Great Ocean Road, which is um, which which is a, a big tourist attraction. But we're we're about a, an hour from Melbourne, so a lot of the uh, work we were doing down there was um, mainly just locals looking for something to do. On, on the weekend or, you know, during the week or on school holidays. So, yeah, a lot of our work was kind of seasonal, I guess. Uh, there wasn't a lot of work in winter, but you still would kind of pick up some flights if it was a nice day on the, on the weekend. So um, there was potential there for it. Uh, it was only a, generally a, a one-man operation, being my old man. But, um, yeah, after I got my licence and there was no jobs around and he wanted some help over summer, I um, ended up getting my float plan endorsement uh, just on my 20th birthday and ended up getting a gig with him for, you know, um, for the start of my flying career.
0: And so where did you actually do your float rating?
1: So I did that up in Melbourne Seaplanes with Rod Gunter. Um, He'd been operating for a long time. He has a little Cessna 185 there. And, um, yeah, it was uh, really good. It was over two days. Drove up to Williamstown there, which is only about an hour drive from Melbourne. A lot of theory. And then um, out into the bay there uh, on a nice day, which was... Uh, it can get pretty rough in that bay, especially up in Melbourne there. at Port Phillip Bay is quite big, but heaps of touch and goes and clocked up something like 40 landings. And then kind of ticked that off, came back to Dad, and um, he sent me solo in the 206 just to do some, some water work by myself to get a bit of confidence up. And, um, yeah, on Boxing Day, I think it was 2009, I, yeah, started doing some ICUS training my first commercial job was yeah, it was pretty good fun
0: All right. that's fantastic and I'm quite interested to see how you you found it because I've recently sort of got into the commercial seaplane flying how is the the learning curve I mean you did your initial training you your checked a line you know but if you've been in the industry you'll know that that's that's just the beginning how how did your first summer go there just been been let loose on this 206
1: man it was I look back at that and it was some of the best flying I think I've done just it was awesome to work with my old man. Um, what I love most about float plane flying is you generally find yourself not at an airport, which I think is amazing. Um, sometimes airports can be pretty annoying places to be around. They're very loud. Uh, there's a lot of procedures, you know, especially in the commercial airline type world, you got to go through security and might be transport issues to get to and from work. Whereas, you know, I was operating down the Geelong waterfront. It was you know parked at dad's yard walked down there was people eating ice creams walking around just enjoying themselves you know that was my workplace which i absolutely loved being around um and it was nice and hot the days were long down there in geelong you know we didn't really finish until nine o'clock in the evening with beautiful sunsets um that's what i love most about it and i think being my old man's son dad really pushed me pretty hard to get stuck into all the flying straight away and and um Put me in the deep end, um, probably more than anyone he would normally put in, because of that fact that he want probably wants his son to do um, really well. So yeah, straight away I was thrown in the deep end, doing kind of ten plus flights a day, docking into this pretty tough little um, key that we had the where we had the pontoon. It was just awesome fun. Um, I just absolutely loved it.
0: Yeah, man, that sounds that sounds like a dreamy summer summer holiday, man. Yeah, um, sure. how was it working for your dad? I mean, you know, like we've all you know had had run-ins with the boss, or you know, <laughs> you disagree with the, the boss. You know, all plain sailing, or a few few moments.
1: Um, yeah, it was. Uh, like I said, it was a bit different. Um, you know, I think he wanted me to do well, so he kind of pushed me into it um, more than he would, or faster than he'd push other pilots into it. Um, but yeah, I probably made it a bit hard sometimes to, um, you know, challenge that you know uh, chief pilot and, and and junior pilot role. Uh, I probably pushed the boundaries a few times with um, what I wanted to do with with my with my life at the time. I was very much into playing cricket, and uh, you know, I was generally taking most Saturdays and some Sundays off during the cricket season yep. to play cricket, um, which which was kind of. Sounds good, I guess, but um, that's where when all the flying was. So I was stuck there during most of the most of the midweek, not getting many hours up, and then kind of giving all the flying to Dad on the weekends. Which, I mean, any commercial pilot these days trying to get a start would just be, you know, try and take every hour, you know, as as quickly as they could. Whereas I was kind of turning them away um, to play cricket on the weekends. So, you know, most operators are probably like, no, stuff you, you're coming to work the weekends, mate, because I want the weekends off for. Um, so I yeah, probably pushed the boundaries a little bit there, but um, yeah, um, no, it was it was yeah. great fun. It was really cool to kind of, as I mentioned, I didn't live with dad growing up, so it was um, kind of great to be around him and, and spend that time with him.
0: Yeah, that's cool, mate. That sounds that sounds like good luck. I've been in the fly for twenty something years, and I still can't get the weekends off. So <laughs> I'll have to, have to talk to you about how you, how you work that. Um, and so, did you do just the one summer for your for your dad, or did you do a couple of summers? Or
1: now, so I did um, two summers and just kind of one winter, I guess. Worked there for a year and a half. You know, as I mentioned, it was a one pilot operation. So dad didn't really need a second guy. Um, So I was looking pretty quickly at trying to find um, a proper job in the industry. Um, I remember dad, we kind of came to an arrangement where I'd get paid $50 a day or $10 a flight. If I didn't get any flights for the day or just one or two flights, I'd, I'd pocket a huge $50. If I did 10 flights, 12 flights on the weekend, it started to become a bit more um worthwhile financially <laughs> yeah. but um yeah so that meant also that i was also working at coles still um you know on some sundays there i'd kind of start work at the waterfront there at 9am and work through to about 2 and then jump in me old Fords Telstar and race down to coles <laughs> and get changed pop the uniform on and and go yep. do the uh, night manager at coles uh, until midnight um
0: that's cool, but it's, it's great because, you know, back then and like when I was coming through flying, you couldn't, there weren't sort of student loan schemes and things for flying. So the type of guy that, that stuck with it and worked those two, three jobs, worked weekends, worked night shifts, done all sorts of things, It's you really had to be keen and I think you did get, you know, it was a bit of a filter really for people that just thought it would be nice to be a pilot sometime.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in the meantime, I was – applying for other seaplane jobs all around the world pretty much i I hit up a lot of people in canada didn't get a lot of replies probably now looking back at it the gfc probably played a lot of a big part in that um and i was only you know 300 hour pilot with 100 hours float time so uh, wasn't very employable at all um yeah kind of stuck to it i I really enjoyed the flying on the 206 there and and i you know i'd love to go back there and spend a summer there again just just doing that kind of work it was it was great fun but um yeah, eventually after a year and a half I'd been pushing the pilots up at Airwit Sunday for a job. I'd kind of visited there four times just um, on my own bat going up there and saying hello and dropping in and when there was a, a spare seat they'd throw me on and take me for a run but after a year and a half a position finally came up at Airwit and I um, you know, was lucky enough to get an interview and um, yeah, got, um, got the job there which was pretty pretty exciting
0: that's awesome I've been up there once or twice and it's and I've flown up that coast quite a bit at high altitude and it's it's absolutely outstanding um maybe some of the listeners um, not from Australia you could just expand about um the Sundays and the Great Barrier Reef or just you know just that area
1: yeah well so like I said when I when I first went up there I um I had no real idea I hadn't I'd only flown commercially on an aeroplane to Sydney uh, when I was 18 after I actually started my own flight training. So I really was not well-travelled. Um, I didn't really know what, what was kind of out there. And I went up for a flight up to the Whitsunday Islands, which is in uh, North Queensland there in Australia. And um, there was, it was a couple of spare seats on this tour, which was with Drew Daniel, who was uh, on episode two of On The Step. Now I work with him today. He took me out, and we did this this tour called the Panorama Tour, which goes all the way around the Whitsunday Islands. So, the Whitsunday Islands are 74 um, separate islands that home to one of Australia's best beaches, the Whitehaven Beach, um, with its beautiful turquoise waters and white sand. It's just incredible. And then, only just a little bit beyond, about kind of 30 or 40 miles offshore, is um, the Great Barrier Reef. And um, I'm sure everyone's seen it on postcards or on images of Australia there, the the beautiful Heart Reef um, with a beaver float plane sitting on the top of the Heart Reef there. Um, That's a pretty well-used image. So the Heart Reef is basically just a heart-shaped reef inside the Great Barrier Reef. So This tour included a a stopover at Whitehaven Beach and then out to the reef there for a two-hour snorkeling trip on um, the Cessna Caravan there onto a um, glass-bottom viewing uh, vessel um, absolutely blew my mind you know that we could first of all I was sitting in a turbine seaplane which for me was just incredible and then um, go using the aeroplane to go out and access these places like Whitehaven Beach and the reef and to run a, a tour uh, with a seaplane I was just absolutely blown away and I thought this is my dream job for sure so that that would kind of spark the the interest to keep going back up there and, and dropping my um dropping my face in the door and make sure that when that interview came um i had a shot of it and actually a funny story about the interview i um this was actually my first real interview in the industry because obviously i didn't really have to do an interview to to work with my old <laughs> man but um yeah. he, he knew that pretty well uh what i was all about but um i went up there and you know i didn't really know how to how to do an interview uh for any company and i ended up doing a powerpoint presentation so <laughs> here i was uh, with this little macbook and uh um, a little PowerPoint presentation all about me and what I knew about the beaver and, um, you know, why I'd be a good fit and everything like that and kind of went into the room and put my laptop down and said, oh, you know, just before we start, I've got a little presentation for you and I did that and um, they were kind of all a bit, I think, a bit shocked and a little bit kind of um, <laughs> entertained in a way but, you know, afterwards yeah. um, I got the job and uh, Lauren, who was uh, actually ended up being my MC at my wedding, um she was the operations manager there at the time in the interview, and she said afterwards she's like we were all just like so blown away by i think the presentation how unique it was, and how you know just we kind of just straight away were just like this is the guy and um yeah, so there you go there's a tip for <laughs> that's
0: fantastic yeah yeah i wouldn't maybe I wouldn't have missed out on so many jobs if i tried something uh, like that yeah. that's uh that's outstanding for a twenty young young twenty year old that's
1: well, it I was only twenty one at the time, I think so.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. So you you got the job after this and how would you not after a presentation like that? And then did you go home or did you just um you know send the old man a, a telegraph and say I'm, I'm not coming back. I've got, well, was, got the new job. It,
1: it was pretty close to a telegraph. I I got back um and basically gave dad a weeks notice and said I'm moving up to the Witt Sundays <laughs> in a week's time, sorry dad. And uh, I think yeah. he was a little bit like, "Oh, okay. Um righto." because I mean, like I said, it wasn't really needed. Um, it was a one man show, but I think he, he, he was getting used to the lifestyle of sitting at home most days doing paperwork, um, in inverted commas and, um, watching me, you know, fly over his house to, to tell him that I've got another flight. Uh, so it meant, meant back to the, back to the hard yards for him. And, um, yeah, I moved on up to the Sundays.
0: Yeah, right. And so, I mean, I've, I've sort of followed that company over the years because that was, that was sort of always a dream of mine to, to be operating other of Sundays. It's It's so iconic, you know, uh, an Air Sundays beaver floating around the, the reef there or out of the heart. Um, how did um, how did it all start as far as the training went? Um, was it quite structured, I would imagine, in a, in a company like that?
1: Yeah, it was. Um so I obviously started off on the Beaver. I had done a caravan endorsement about a few months before that. Um, because the Whitsundays is a pretty challenging place to fly, especially with the reef there, uh, you start off kind of doing a lot of ICUS, especially with scenic flights uh, where you're just doing touch and goes out at the reef uh, and, and beach trips as well. They're kind of the generally the easier things to do. So you kind of do some ICUS flying with that. And then once you kind of build up your skill, Uh, and they're a bit more comfortable with you start doing some reef trips and actually one of the other things we had to do was uh, with the boat you had to have a restricted coxswains to to be the boat captain Um, so what that meant was you had to do uh, a certain amount of trips to the reef to log your sea time so I think from memory it was something like 25 trips um, to the reef before you could then go and apply for this restricted coxswains Uh, before you could go solo so you know you had to do about 25 trips to the reef with another pilot um, who had that coxswain so that was actually really good though because that meant you built up a lot of experience out of that reef because it was quite challenging basically and you know especially on a glassy day and with the water a little bit above the reef there you know you're just relying completely on um on the markers that are laid out in the lagoon to tell you where the coral bombies are because you could hit them and tear a hole in the float uh, instantly so um, we had basically a map of the lagoon there with the runs through the the coral that they would be your takeoff paths basically almost like little runways so it took a lot of um, time to memorize them and yeah so I think after a few months I kind of let loose and um, run in tours by myself and um, and then eventually kind of went on to the caravan
0: and so how, how many hours would you do training, would you say, like ballpark in the, in the Beaver to get checked to line?
1: Um, from memory, I think we did about an hour or two as just dual. So going up and doing, you know, some steep turns and all that. And then yeah. it was basically straight onto the Icus. And I think from memory, I was, I went solo on the Beaver after about 10 hours of Icus just on a scenic flight. Um, okay, yeah. And then maybe yeah. all up, I probably had about 30 or 40 hours of Icus flying. Um, yep. in total, before basically I was fully checked and could do most tours by myself. And you know, every now and again, you might do something a little bit different. Like you might go to a different bay that is only accessible in certain winds. So um, someone will just jump in there with you, and you do Icus again, and go get checked out to that little area. And then, yeah, so it was it was really good um, training environment, and um, and a lot of experience with the other pilots as well
0: yeah that's brilliant. it's such a good way to do it and, and and you know you know you've sort of reached the point where you're ready when you sort of think, man, I wish this guy'd just get out of the plane and let me do it you know yeah. and and do you on those those reef runways does the do you ever get swell in there like do you get the ocean coming over the reef and getting a bit of swell in the in the lagoon itself
1: so the reef we operate in Hardy reef was uh, what's called a suspended reef um probably not the technical term I think but yeah so so it's imagine like a uh, a kidney shape it was a kidney shaped reef um and on a high tide the reef would be uh, sorry the water would be straight up above the uh the reef there, so any ocean swell you'd get from wind and whatnot um would be taken would just go straight over the top, so you could not go there at a high tide um right okay and and don't forget as well the north coast of queensland there the great barrier Reef it does take out a lot of that ocean swell, so most of the swell you 're getting is normally um just wind wind swell type thing. Um, Now, when when you had a low tide, the actual edge of that kidney shape came out of the water. So, the whole reef basically came out of the water on a low tide which meant that everything inside was protected water and it would basically go to being like a little lake um, in the middle of the ocean. So, it was was amazing to see. So, you could operate up to 25 knots offshore, you know, 50 miles offshore of the coast and um, be on a low tide there and you could be completely safe. But if you were stuck wow. there and the, and the tide came up, and there was a few times you had a tour where you would um, on the tail end of that tour there, you'd be departing when the tide's coming up. Maybe they would have fit in two yeah. tours in a, in a t- low tide. Um, it got quite rough, and you kind of were hurrying wow. people up and shutting the boat up pretty quickly before. Um, it yeah. got too rough, you know, so um, yeah. But yeah, it was incredible yeah. how, how, how protected those bays got.
0: Yeah, because I know um, in the Maldives, um, one lagoon I was thinking of in particular down south, um, same thing, low tide looks beautiful, but then at high tide they can get some pretty big swells coming through the lagoon and it's quite narrow. So like you say, with a bit of wind and a bit of swell, all of a sudden this, this tame little lagoon becomes uh, pretty exciting.
1: Yeah, and that's like, uh, I'm not sure what how you operated into that with regular services, but that was the great thing about us was we were a tour company, so uh, we had, you know, the tides are, Indefinite, you, you know that the, the t- what the tide's going to be doing in months in advance. So, operations yeah, team right. would print out our manifest for each day, and it'd have the tide chart in in like a, a wave, like a sine wave type thing, up the top, and um, they would just schedule tours like months in advance for certain times um, for that that tide for that day. So, uh, we're always going out to the reef there on a low tide.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's that's. uh that's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, how long um, did you join the Beaver before they put you on the caravan?
1: Um, I think it was about eight months or something like that. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah. They, they like to have everyone flying both machines. They didn't really like to um, kind of pigeonhole people on, obviously, for operation reasons. It's great to have pilots yeah. who can fly both. So. Yeah, it was about eight months, I think, and they were pretty happy with how my progress was going and then, yeah, stepped up onto the caravan, which was which was awesome.
0: Yeah, how, how was that? I'm, I'm particularly interested in this, going from a from a piston, say, a Beaver, jumping into a caravan, you know, as far as the, the water handling and docking and, and the rest of it goes.
1: Well, it's funny because I think the Beaver probably was a lot harder to operate. It was slower. It didn't climb as quick. Um, it was noisier. All of those, you know, sometimes starting the engine was hard, um, you had all those issues with with the Beaver being um, a smaller small aeroplane, I guess. And then you get up to the caravan, and you know it's air conditioned. The turbine you have never have any issues with power or starting, or you know it's just it, it was it was awesome. So the the, the step up was was um, was pretty good. And and you already had experience in the area, so with the Beaver, so uh, you already knew all about the lagoons and everything. Uh, Where it did become a bit harder was things like on the beach um, because you've got such a big aeroplane, you you know, trying to hold that sideways against the wind to try and unload 10 people um, by yourself can be very hard. Um, And then, you know, you're running a tour with 10 people now as well instead of maybe four or five. Um, So that was a challenge as well. Yeah, Um, Yeah, all in all, I think it was was a great aeroplane to operate. I mean, like I said, you know, You'd fly around the Whitsundays at 1,500 feet in the Beaver just because it was just a waste of time to try and climb any, climb any higher. But as soon as you got in the caravan, you could just punch up to four and a half, five thousand 5,000 feet or whatever. And you just saw the Whitsundays from a completely different perspective, which was pretty incredible as well.
0: Yeah, right. And they, they, um, their short field performance was okay for operating, obviously, where you guys did?
1: Yeah, well, then, like, you, you consider reverse power on the uh, turboprop there. Which made things made life a lot easier. So yeah, you had lots of power. Um we used to take off with twenty degree of flap, which I think is pretty normal for a caravan from memory. Um and we used to th- do this thing called Call the Doctor where you'd kind of if you needed that extra <laughs> bit of extra bit of lift, you'd just go to full flap before you were kind of getting to take off speed and that'd kind of yep. just shoot you up out of the water and, and then you you just kind of stay in ground effect and get the flap back to twenty and kind of off you went. Yep. Yeah. I mean that probably had a bit longer take off distances sometimes, but um, Overall, they're they're a really good operating machine. One of the issues with them, though, was the cycles. So we used to operate into Hayman Island and then, you know, up to the reef and Whitehaven back to Hayman, back to Chute and back to Whitehaven. It's just the the longest sector sometimes to the reef and back, that was only half an hour. So um, you kind of... On average, doing two to three cycles every hour, so it was pretty hard on those engines.
0: Wow, well, yeah, you, you guys didn't do hot turnarounds um, back at um, at the main airfield, there.
1: We did when we could, but most of the time we had to refuel, or you know, yeah. it might have meant you know had to give the give the plane a good tidy before the next tour, or um, yeah. So we tried to as much as we could to save those cycles, but in the end, it was pretty hard to.
0: Yeah right. And what was the deal you guys had the the modified beavers with with the um, the modified wing and tail and things?
1: Yeah, so we had a beaver with a wing. It was called the Advanced Wing Technology, um, which for short AWT wing. Um, basically, uh, we used to kind of like to call it like the caravan wing. So obviously, original beaver there you, you fly around with like a climb flap setting and a bit of a cruise yeah. flap setting and everything. And, yeah. Um, this this. Uh, wing was about 200 kilos heavier, but I think you could lift 200 kilos extra, or something around that. Um, but it basically performed like a caravan wing. So you take off with 20 degree flap, and kind of get the flap up, and um, you just found that the the nose attitude was a lot better for for cruise and and um, for climbing, and um, you've you got a probably an extra 10 knots of airspeed out of it as well. So that was good. And then uh, we also had wing fuel in that machine as well. Um, so we could take up a, a lot of fuel in the wings for ferrying. It was just a, a transfer system, I think, that was gravity-fed down into the belly tanks there, so you had to just keep topping the belly tank up, uh, which then ran into the engine there. But, um, yeah, it was uh, there was positives and negatives to it. I think, overall, the the pilots that flew those beavers would probably still choose the, the old-school wing as, as their favourite.
0: Okay, yeah, that's interesting, yeah, because I'm flying a beaver up here, and we spend the whole day climbing, basically, and... You know, you got that nose so high up in the air you can't see where you are And even in the cruise, you know, the nose is way up in the air. And someone actually told me, like from the outset, the because if you look at a beaver, it's actually got a negative angle of incidence when it's sitting just flat in the water, and um, that's why you you climb a flap out. And they reckon it's it's actually a bit of a a defect, you know, from yeah, right. from birth. Yeah, yeah. yeah
1: okay. Yeah, I, I remember always, you know, just you'd be in a climb and you were climbing terribly, and you just had to play around with the flap a little bit, and you just yeah. <laughs> might have just adjusted a little bit down or a little bit up, and eventually yeah. you kind of got something. Yeah. You might notice the the VSI go from 100 feet a minute to 200 feet a minute, and you're really kicking some goals. So yeah, um, yeah, 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 but, uh,
0: I can identify with that. Yeah. Over there. yeah. <laughs> now um, the wit Sunday is littered with tourists and, and good looking chicks and bikinis. Did Did you find any any nice girls down there,
1: mate? I did. Yeah, it wasn't on a tour, but uh, that's where I met my uh, beautiful wife today uh, in the Wood Sundays um, it wasn't on the beach but um, she used to go there pretty regularly because she was flying helicopters around that area at the time and um, yeah so uh, kind of met on a fateful New Year's Eve as most um, stories go I think and then uh, kind of hit off from there and uh, here we are today
0: and was she find um, squirrels or a stars or ec 130s or whatever it's called
1: yeah so that was Jen's first job over there, so she um, she started off just on 44. She got the job with basically a bear commercial, which is pretty incredible. Um, she did a year on the ground at Heyman, and in that period, I think she logged something like 50 hours of ICUS when they kind of had dead legs and stuff like that, um, yep. but she was basically doing operations, and after a year of that on the ground and 50 hours of ICUS they guaranteed her a, um, a spot at Hamilton Island, so she started on the 44 after a year on the ground, and... Um, Yeah, she stuck that out for a little bit and then ended up kind of once we got together and, you know, there was a bit of a commuting distance. I was in Early, She was on the island and she ended up taking a instructing role because of her teaching background. She's a qualified teacher. Um, She got into instructing and back on the mainland there. So did some instructing at Hallibears, did a bit of turbine flying and then um, eventually she ended up flying the 130 up in Cairns, which was kind of our next location we got to, yeah.
0: Yeah right okay so all right that's good and um now did did you end up being the chief pilot there
1: Oh I did a stint yeah for about 3 months I think um the the chief pilot at the time took he he'd been at the company for a fair while 8 or 9 years I think and um he wanted to take 3 months off and go and do a, a season at the Horizontal Falls to help out and oh, yeah. um yeah. and that left me basically in charge uh for 3 months which was uh, yeah it was a great experience to be kind of say that you were the chief pilot at one stage of one of the Australia's oldest seaplane companies is pretty cool and uh, it was, yeah, it was good fun.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Probably three months would be enough, eh?
1: I think so, yeah. I was pretty ready to yeah. hand it back, I think, when he came Yeah, out.
0: yeah. And so so you did, what, four or five years there in the end and then then how do you leave paradise, mate? you got the girl, you got the, the floatplane job in paradise. Uh, what, what do you go looking for after that?
1: Well, yeah, it was tough. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we love living in Ailey and I love that job. Unfortunately, the company was kind of um, showing signs of not really doing that well. And, um, you know, there were some days there that were, uh, you know, kind of wondered whether or not you'd be going to work with a with a padlock door. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, things weren't really that great at the time. And um, so we kind of knew that uh, maybe the, the dream was over a little bit and we had to move on. And um it was time to kind of do some instrument flying and, and take my career, I guess, into that next phase of flight, I guess. And, uh, yeah, so pursued a, a company up in Cairns and um, after an interview there, which was a bit more formal and there was no PowerPoint presentation on this one, unfortunately. But, uh, <laughs> still got the up, job. <laughs> still got the job, yeah. So, yeah, that was the next step.
0: Yeah, right. And and so were you active, actively looking to get out of floats or, you, you know, had you resigned that, you know, I've done my float flying, um, I'm going to head towards the airlines, or was it just a just a job popped up and you fancy to fancy to move up the coast a wee bit?
1: Yeah, no, I don't think it was ever like this is it for me for the end of my float flying career. You know, the my dream back then was always to fly in the Maldives as well to to get over there and do some twin otter flying, and but I needed an ATPL for that, so I kind of thought, well, I need to keep progressing my career and. Uh, the next step was the IFR world and I'd used the kind of caravan time that I had on floats to, to get this job and which was mainly caravan on wheels. So um, yeah, I kind of targeted them I guess um, but um, I was never really thinking this is the end for floats but I, but on the other hand, I never really knew when it would come back and after six months of being at that company up in Cairns there, I, um, I read a, a job ad that was to fly an EX caravan over on... Uh, on floats over in Vietnam and um, my curiosity sparked pretty quickly and thought about maybe how cool it would be to do a six-month contract overseas in an Asian country, you know, that would just be a complete culture change and get back into float flying again. So it turns out it was only a six-month break and and then (sighs) there I was over in Vietnam, um, all of a sudden, yeah, flying an EX caravan out of Hanoi
0: all right, yeah, that's <laughs> that's a yeah, yeah, quick move. Good on you. And and uh, what what was the time frame between applying for the job and and getting up there?
1: That was pretty quick, actually. Like you know, I remember the story. I was so I'd flown a caravan from Cairns out to Lizard Island, which is this uh, beautiful island just about an hour north of Cairns, and um, there's uh, no reception in between that sector for your phone. And but I was on Lizard Island for a bit of a day wait or something, so I was went into their kind of waiting area and was on the phone that's when I found this job and I sent the email through just kind of inquiring wasn't really thinking too much about it at the time but I was I kind of read the minimums and I was like I wouldn't mind finding out a bit more about this and um so I took off out of Lizard Island got back into Cairns and I think I had about like two Skype missed calls or you know three emails or something just being like we need to talk to you kind of thing I was like <laughs> Jesus this is quick wow and then yeah, like yeah. literally you know I think a week later I had an interview with the chief pilot Dave Radford who's he's been on the show as well who's an absolute legend yeah, and, yeah. Um, all of a sudden um, yeah I'd kind of been off of the job and yeah that was it was pretty tough i just we just got engaged uh Jen and I, and the wedding was planned this was in I think it was in March when I uh, almost got this job and uh, w- the wedding was planned for uh November and uh, so didn't have a lot of time to fill in in between the two, but ended up getting this six month contract to basically come back and get married so um yeah it was uh it was pretty sad to s- say goodbye to Jen, but it was a, a pretty amazing experience to go live over in Hanoi.
0: Oh, for sure, mate. Yeah, and and so give us a quick rundown on on the operation up there.
1: Yeah, so it's High Air Aviation. Uh, they're still operating today. They started up um, by another fella in Australia, and uh, as part of Sydney Seaplanes Global, they basically went out there and had a bit of money behind them, obviously, and they went and bought three brand new EX Caravans on the Whipline eighty-seven fifties, and um, you know, glass cockpit it was all IFR multi crew with a Vietnamese co-pilot. And um, we flew from Hanoi to Halong Bay, which was pretty amazing to fly out to Halong Bay. It was you know I'd actually been there prior, a few years before that, when they just started up. But, um, yeah, Halong Bay is a beautiful spot and it's incredible from the air. And, um, yeah, it was, like I said, it was all IFR, so it was pretty cool. And those hours were helping me out with um, what I was expected to go back to the job back in Cairns uh, there. But um, after... Six month, and they were pretty happy with me, so they asked me to stay again. And um, this time, Jen came over, and we did another contract after we had our wedding and honeymoon.
0: Oh, that's awesome! Man. That's that sounds so good. Eh? And 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 how is how the the water work um, up there compared to what you'd been doing in, in um, the wet Sundays?
1: It was actually um, pretty easy to be honest. It was Howland Bay didn't get a lot of wind. Um, it's very well protected because of all of the islands, so there's no swell rolling in. So it's only ever wind chop. I think from memory there was only really one day that we were really kind of touch and go whether or not we should actually depart in this weather and I was actually quite comfortable in it because I knew what the caravan could do uh, from my experience in the Whitsundays. So generally it was light winds. It was, you were kind of always landing on a lake almost. It was was quite simple and and to be honest it kind of got pretty boring pretty quickly because it was landing in the same area all the time. There was a huge big ramp there that we used to go up um, to park the plane on, on this little island that we operated on um, oh right yeah. yeah so it was great to do the ramping all the time but it was um which we i'd, I'd done already in the Sunday, so i was experienced in that kind of avenue but to be honest it did kind of bore me pretty quickly because it was pretty um docile type of flying
0: yeah okay and so so you went back for that second stint for six months and then then that was that was it
1: yeah well um it was actually quite funny, so on, on our honeymoon, um, so I'd already organised to do this contract again um, and Jen was going to come over this time and, and we were going to spend six months and um, that that first contract that I did, we had, it was just Dave and myself as the captains. Um, so the roster was really um, ad hoc and it was basically uh, sold as, as per the schedule, that was what your roster would be. So you'd still get the normal leave that you were, or the time off for flight and duty purposes, but um you had to be basically there whenever they had flights on so there was no real uh you know weekends or time where you could go away as such but on this second roster there was a third captain coming over so we were like that kind of sold it to us a little bit more that you know we'd have basically a nine-day fortnight so every second weekend Jen and I could shoot away somewhere in Asia and just have three days to ourselves exploring different places and um she came over just before Christmas and I think three days after she arrived, the third captain that we got in uh, was hit by a car on a scooter and fractured his hip in three different uh. places or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So unfortunately, he had to go back home to Canada and that just left Dave and I back to this uh, as per the schedule roster. So um, uh. that was pretty frustrating and you know, it left Jen kind of, she wasn't working at all so she was kind of at the gym most of the time Giving the uh, the bike that had uh, Netflix attached to it the the slowest pedal speed possible to keep the Netflix <laughs> running. Um, yeah,
0: that's good. One way of keeping the missus in, in uh, shape. Huh?
1: <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I think she was getting yeah. angrier more than anything. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a couple of trips in, um, but yeah, overall it was it didn't really work out to plan. But actually, on our so on our honeymoon in between the two contracts, um, I think we're in Yosemite National Park actually, and I get this text message early in the morning and. It's Drew Daniel from from Pass and like I said, he was the one at Airwit that I worked with as well and he literally said to me, he's like, mate, we've just had someone quit at Pass here, I reckon you should get your resume kind of tidied up and Pass Paley was, you know, the Mallards there were kind of like, um, they always just got pilots from Airwit Sunday. It was, Airwit Sunday was a bit of a breeding ground for Pass Paley and um, so… I kind of said to Jen we'd, we'd thought about passing the in the past and and but the potential of living up in Darwin here and I kind of said to her and I was like looked at her and I think we both agreed that it was kind of time that that was the that was the next step you know it was multi crew in Australia again uh it was multi turbine IFR it was it's kind of the, the pinnacle really of float flying probably anywhere in the world I think um in in re- in regards to ticking all those boxes you know so Um, Yeah, after kind of four months of uh, doing an interview and and them kind of getting themselves sorted out over in Darwin there um, and me kind of arguing to the people in Vietnam that I I want to pull my contract short so I could go back to another another job in Australia, um, we finally got out of there and um, started off uh, with where I am now at PASS.
0: So that's quite a cunning ploy. You take your your wife to um, deepest darkest Asia until she's not really loving it, and suddenly Darwin looks like quite a quite an attractive place.
1: Yeah, it's uh, sometimes it's pretty hard to make Darwin look attractive, but um, yeah, yeah oh, well done. I, I did well update. done.
0: <laughs> so and then you came back, had a bit of a holiday, presumably, and then turned up in Darwin with your uh, with your rucksack and uh, joined uh, Passpally Aviation.
1: Yeah, it was literally it was probably exactly that man. I think I finished flying on a Friday and got to <laughs> Darwin on Sunday, so and yeah. started work on Monday. So I literally changed jobs over a weekend internationally. Um, yeah, do not yeah. recommend that at all. Um,
0: it doesn't seem to happen in many other industries. It just seems to be aviation, you know. And I guess if you've come up through GA, you know, if there's a job going and it's offered to you, you get there, you know, on the overnight train, <laughs> pay for yeah. your own ticket. Tech- Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: So I was there. Like, yeah. I think I joined a bit of a party on Sunday afternoon, and yeah, literally was flying in Vietnam two days before, and had to start work the next day. It was, it was, um, it was pretty crazy, but, um, yeah, it was awesome to to get back into it in, in Australia and, um, yeah, jump into the the learning curve of what is the Malad.
0: Yeah. Right. And so I guess myself, like most of the listeners, we we all wanna wanna join Paspali Aviation and fly these these turbo Mallards. So just talk us through. You arrive on a Monday, you're fresh out of Asia, you've got a bit of, bit of float time on, on, on uh, conventional float planes, I guess you call them, and uh, you're going to drive a Mallard. I mean, <laughs> you must be pretty stoked.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it was, um, once again, another bit of a dream to get onto this aeroplane. Yeah, so we started off um, straight away into kind of the, the ordinary stuff you do, reading the office manuals and all that kind of crap. you've got to do to tick all those boxes early (laughs) on you know then we went into this really detailed ground school which was run by our chief pilot Andrew Lawler and it's um he's done a really good job of setting up a really good ground theory course uh that runs for about three weeks going through all the systems um and you know even over over the top of all the you know engine stuff with pd6s that even though I'd had 2,000 hours of pd6 time whatever you know it's all covered again which is really good I think um and then you know, you go out, you start off by doing just some general handling. Uh, we generally do a lot of the um, the air and ground stuff first. So you kind of go out there, general handling, some circuits. You go out and do some IFR stuff in the airplane. And this is all in the left seat as well to be uh, to start with because you've got yep. to get your type rating for the airplane. So you're up there in the left doing all this stuff and then eventually you get um, in and, and take it onto the water for the first time, which... Um, is an incredible experience. Obviously, being in a hull, you know, you're sitting a lot lower than the float plane. Um, <laughs> yeah. Water splashing over the windscreen, you know, you, it doesn't get blown off by the prop. Um, it's all all these different things, you know, no water rudder, you know, using the, the engines to turn and all this kind of stuff. So, that was a huge eye-opener. And then then you get a, a check ride for your type rating, which um, it's it's an interesting one as well because... Um, This whole multi-crew with the co-pilot in the right seat acting as a co-pilot and also the examiner, it it creates this really interesting dynamic in the cockpit where you know the guy is supposed to be the co-pilot to help you out but also has to leave you long enough to kind of let you make mistakes to potentially fail you, I guess, if, you know what I mean? Like So I I remember one one example was we were kind of airborne and there's a few fluffy Darwin clouds around like there normally is and um, he's like, are you going to turn the weather radar on? And I was like, Yeah. What? Do you think I should turn it on? Kind of thing. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's like, Yes, I think you should turn it on. And like, okay, I'll, I'll. Can I? And then you've got to remember <laughs> yeah. that he's the co-pilot. So, I, I'm like, I went over there to turn the turn the weather radar, and he's like, No, yeah. you've got to ask me to turn it on. Yeah. It's like Jesus, this is confusing. But okay, yeah. Right yeah. And that was that was one of the hard things about multi-crew. Eh? I'm sure you probably would have experienced that as well. Is, you know, there's the co-pilot might have left. Or someone might have left the GPS on a different page to what it should have been. It's not on the map mode anymore or something. And all you have to do is just lean over there and press the back button. But you're the pilot flying, you've got to ask the guy to to go down there and change that GPS back or, you know, something like that. It's um, it's a different world, yeah. the old multi-crew stuff. Yeah, for
0: sure. There's a few there's a few procedures flying the uh, 787 like that where, the you know, the... Flying is not allowed to, you know, load the FMC or, or whatever. But you know, you're sitting at 30, 36,000 feet with the autopilot and. You know it's not a problem for you to load the, the FMC. So sort of the way around it is you give the other guy control and you do what you want to do and then you take it back. Um, and so you can just keep handing the other guy control, which doesn't change anything. You just tell him that he has control and, and you do what you want to do and then he gives you control back. So there's ways around it. But yeah, it's, it's certainly, a, certainly a different way of doing business when you're used to just quickly doing things yourself. Exactly. And so, so you do your full type rating and your your check right in the left seat, and now you've got to hop in the right seat and start line training.
1: Yeah. So the I mean the first thing is you go out in there and do like a left seat, uh, sorry, a right seat orientation type thing. So you go out there and, and now go and plonk it on the water again after you've got your type rating and start to do a bit of familiarisation in the right seat, and then straight into um, line flying. So you're with obviously a line training captain, and um, you go out there and start smashing some hours out. So the minimum we have for any FO before they get checked to line is 100 hours of line flying in the right seat. Um, But that's an absolute minimum and it's very rare to see pilots do that that little amount of flying before they get checked to line um, because the aeroplane is quite complicated. And also it just takes a long time to get used to it on the water and we don't actually do a lot of water work. Our sectors are kind of generally kind of two hours long with some water work at the end there and you're sharing that around as well as a, as a multi-crew. So um, it does take a long time um, to get... I've heard of guys who have done over 250 hours of uh, line flying before being checked to line as an FO and that's not because of uh, the skill level, it's just because they're not getting an, getting out there often enough. Um, there might have been a slow period, it might have been the wet season and they're only kind of flying one or sometimes one day a fortnight. So... Yeah, that's probably one of the negatives. But yeah, I think I, I came at the right time. I came at the start of the dry. So we had a, a few charters as well as our purling flight. So I think I did about 110 um, hours or something like that and was, was checked to line.
0: Yeah, right, right. And so I mean, I've never flown a flying boat. I'm sure heaps of your your listeners haven't. What is the big difference, and and how does it just change your world when you hop out of a float plane? I mean, I guess, I guess you turn up and you think, you know, I've got a, I've got a bit of float playing experience, and um, you know, how difficult can it be? How's the, how's the difference?
1: Well, it's yeah, it's a huge difference. I mean, the first thing is <laughs> obviously the, the point of contact. I mean, a float plane has two points of contact there with, with both floats. So you could imagine that as like a car, and then um, with your flying boat, you've only got the one point of contact with the hull there, so you could kind of compare that to your bike. So you've got the bike versus the car type thing. Um, so on the step there it creates a, a bit of a, an issue with the floats out on the wings. so you want to make sure that the wings are nice and level as long as possible, which when you're doing turns and whatnot creates some issues. So you're going to be right on top of that. But the biggest thing I found was the the transition from you know displacement taxi into or being on the step. It just porpoise was was a huge issue. There's a lot of power from those turbines, and you know it kind of it kind of goes up quite quickly, especially when you're light. And then if you're not if you're not setting that attitude correctly um, as quick as possible, the the airplane just kind of leaps out and almost comes back down, and and then can start a pretty aggressive porpoise up and down. Um, and that was a real struggle uh, for a long time. I remember being so comfortable in float planes that I. I did think I was pretty cool and and pretty good at what I was doing. I, I really felt like I had the touch of where the step was on a float plane. And it kind <laughs> yeah. of mastered that pretty well, but all of a sudden, this just kicked the confidence out of you. Something shocking, and yeah, it was a, a huge learning curve. And but you know, from talking with other people before, especially like people like Coe, who was back in the day, or even Michael Steers, who flew them in the Virgin Islands. Like, I think everyone who has flown a Mallard has has kind of had some sort of issue with getting used to that attitude uh when transitioning onto the step there and and uh and dealing with porpoising um yeah i mean the other thing the other things you do have as well is the differences you don't have a water rudder as i mentioned earlier so taxiing around is used by differential power on uh, on the turbo there so a lot of reverse and and beta um which is um which is good fun and can be challenging sometimes i remember doing a time lapse of of looking at the front window one time on the I think I did it for a takeoff, and um, the amount of left and right turns I did whilst taxiing on the water, I looked, and it just showed so easily on this time lapse. I was just like, man, I cannot yeah. keep this thing straight on the water. It is yeah. super yeah. hard. Yeah, things like docking as well. It's it's we obviously nose dock them on, but uh, which is great. But you've got to have ground crew for that. Um, you know, unlike the float plane where you can just come up alongside a, a pontoon with your high wing and nothing hanging out the side there. Um, we i've I've never seen that with a mallard um which you know could cause some issues obviously with the turboprop being so low, and you know if you were to go straight over a pontoon there there's issues with that might be might hit the actual actual dock uh and then you wouldn't have any dock hands there because obviously the the prop would be right over the top of the dock there so and then you've got to worry about the, what the float's doing out the side <laughs> there, so I'm not really sure how a dock would go um side on with the plane but um
0: yeah. I've seen a few um, pictures of gooses. I think those guys at Wilderness, Is a yep. Wilderness Ear. Yeah. I see they, they dock side on sometimes. Yeah, but they have the uh, advantage
1: with having retractable floats. So they can retract one float, which would be the, the opposite side to the docking. Which yep. And if and if they can drop that wing right down low, it really lifts up that other wing way up into right. the air there. And I'm not okay. sure whether they actually retract that opposite, of that the docking side float as well. Uh, yeah. But that would get it out of the way and um, that helps a lot. You see those machines docked up and it looks a bit weird to be honest because the plane's almost, yeah. <laughs> almost t- flipped over, you know, but um, that obviously works pretty well. But, yeah, we can't do that. Another great thing with the inability to dock means we have to start picking up moorings or dropping the anchor. So that means accessing that nose bay through the co-pilot's um, yeah. the dash there which um, which is great fun the first time you do that and pop your head up through the hatch and... You see the the two turboprops there, right in front of your face, um, blaring away, and then you've got to use the hook there to pick up the the mooring line. So that's um that's a great bit of fun and and, and a real difference as well.
0: Mate, that's outstanding. So 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 talk me through talk me through a takeoff in this Mallard, like and, and all this this porpoising and 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 trying to keep the thing straight. Yep. And how does it go from from the start of a takeoff run?
1: Yeah. So once we've picked our takeoff path there. We'll uh, line it up and then basically you've got ru- full right aileron and full right rudder and full back stick to start off with. So wow. straight away, yeah. Um, and that's obviously to counteract all of those turning effects to the left. So you'll go and put in put in power. You generally kind of start off, let the, let the props come up pretty slowly and then once they're kind of governed, you then kind of feed the power in pretty aggressively and then just call for um, the pilot monitoring to set the uh, takeoff power and just adjust the the torques to that uh, red line because it is quite a dynamic takeoff so as the pilot flying your eyes are out a lot and you're really fighting the controls to keep this thing straight and you know once you've kind of set roughly near that takeoff power the plane's almost coming up out of the water and um, that's when it starts to become quite critical to set that step attitude so yeah so you kind of getting up near full power and calling for the, the, the pilot monitoring to set the power for you. So they're adjusting it finally. That's what a, a lot of people have noticed that in the videos that I've put up of, you know, why do you guys hold hands when you set the power? Well, it's Well We're not yeah. actually holding hands, but the guy's got his hands ready to go so that he can adjust those powers very quickly. Once that's kind of done, your eyes are outside the whole time. You're really focusing on the horizon to, to get that attitude set, to keep the wings level and to keep the plane straight. Like I said, it does your left pretty hard. Sometimes you've got to actually pull the right engine power back just a little bit to keep it straight. Um, so once, you, once you're on the step though and you've got a bit more authority through your rudder um, due to the airflow, um, it's pretty uh, easy to keep the plane straight. But in those first stages there, I've, I've had an aborted takeoff where the plane just wouldn't, wouldn't straighten at all and it just kept going left and we almost got into this kind of spiral of a left turn on the water before even getting onto the step there to and we had to abort the takeoff because we just couldn't control it um yeah right. so yeah and you've got to you, be on top of that
0: do, do you um on a normal takeoff, all things being equal do you lead with the left engine a little bit or yeah is it, so
1: you do yeah you, you're kind of leading with that left to help counteract that and then yep. that's that's what i mentioned with once you kind of push the power up the pilot monitoring may just kind of not push that power on the right engine just at the start um as high as it could go until you do have that more authority and Everything's clear, and then you can kind of set them um, right up the top there on the red line. But um, yeah, once once you've got that transition good and you're you're on the step there, uh, we we don't use flap for takeoff, so the takeoff speed at max takeoff weight um, can be up near eighty six knots, which is really pumping along there. Um, so it takes a while to take off sometimes, and you're just using the rudder. Um, pedals to keep things straight and and then until you get to the to V one speed and, and then off we go. The thing's quite manoeuvrable in the water as well. You can do some pretty sharp turns on the step. So and we have to use that a fair bit. You might have a takeoff where you have to point it at the land um, to start the takeoff run and, and and then once you're on the step there you give it a boot full of rudder and end up being crosswind by the end, but you've got a clear takeoff path in front of you once you get airborne. So um, that's I do love those. It's it's great to be able to be get that thing on the step and really maneuver it around, you know, kick it around there, and um, it, it's challenging, but it's yeah really rewarding.
0: Yeah, oh, I think that's one of the coolest things about float flying, and isn't, isn't it that you? It's almost artistic, you know, given the conditions and the the area you've got to work with. You you come up with with the best option for the day and and uh, make it happen. And and the difference between doing a good job of that and an average job is. Is quite um opposite things of the scale compared with just operating on land.
1: Yeah, absolutely, mate. I mean, not to take away from some some wild land running, you know, runways uh, landings <laughs> that I've had before, but you know, generally, you're overflying an aerodrome and you've got to pick which way, which runway you're going to use. You know, whereas you you overfly an area where you've got to land a, a seaplane and you've got to consider so many more factors. And like you said, there's there's probably hundreds of ways you could attack this this area that you've got to land in, but maybe 80 of those could end up with some damage to the airplane or could you know ride off a plane if you choose the wrong one or so you've got to be quite creative of picking areas and and i think quite skillful as well as to being at the right speed at your touchdown point to make sure that you don't float or you know you don't sometimes your runway might only be 200 300 meters long um, and you've got to hit that spot and you know slow down pretty quickly so yeah that's what i love about it as well mate there's just the variety and every every day is a different day on the water
0: i like him float playing a lot to um to to bush flying exactly what you're saying is you're quite often you've you've got a restricted area and you need to get it down right on the spot um and also to tail dragger flying with that you know getting up on the step you know you're lifting the tail of a tail dragger up and then as the tail comes up it, it swings to the left and so i think um i've seen a few adverts of um guys advertising for seaplanes and they sort of said you know if you don't have too much seaplane experience then you know we'll look at tailwheel experiences it's, it's pretty valuable time
1: yeah unfortunately i don't have any tailwheel time but that's something <laughs> i want to i want to change in the future i think uh, one of the only yeah. flights i've actually done in a tailwheel is with you mate in the one 180 so uh pretty stoked on that little trip you gave me a little go i don't know if i really pass that that uh, take off but um it was certainly good fun
0: And now, can you, those wingtip floats, um, I don't know the technical name for them, can you put those in the water if you're doing a a step turn or, I mean, if they accidentally touch the water a wee bit, is that a big deal?
1: We don't do that. Um, You can step turn still quite aggressively with the wings level. I have seen videos or photos of of mallards or other big flying boats where the wingtip float is in the water on a turn. And I think that kind of probably goes back to where those operators were operating in generally being kind of lake areas where the water is generally quite smooth. Where we put these machines in, the the water can be quite rough and the wing floats are not designed to take much of a load at all and and they're actually designed to shear off so that they don't get caught um, too badly and cause the wing dragging through the water. and So no, we don't put them in the water at all, um, and that's mainly because of the conditions that we operate in.
0: Yeah, okay. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. So um, past Pally Aviation, I, th- I think there's several different branches, are they, but the, the Mallards themselves are primarily, well, up until recently, I gather, have been primarily just in support of the purling. But um, your wife and boss, um, she's uh, operations manager, and, and you're starting to do a bit more charter work
1: with them? Yeah, so Jen's, uh, she's now the business manager now. She started off as operations and commercial development at Passpaley So when we moved to Darwin, she um, got another flying gig here, Flying Choppers, uh, but didn't really like the flying up in Darwin that much. So kind of went more into a management role. And um, since then, she's kind of added the, t- the, the title of business manager. So she's basically the whole manager of Pass Aviation now, which is pretty incredible. She's doing a great job. Um, wow. But um, yeah, so her f- she was originally brought on uh, because, uh, like you said, these planes are generally used for the support of the pearling operations that we do. Um, Pastelie pearls are basically the world's best pearls, we believe, um, and they're farmed out in the um, open ocean there of the Kimberley region, which is so isolated and one of the best places to to grow these beautiful, um, you know, oyster shells that support these pearls. You know, we're, we're supporting the, the pearling uh, efforts there with the mallards but um, there is a lot of downtime with the planes on the ground and uh, they kind of saw an opportunity there to increase some charter work. So Jen was originally brought on to um, kind of source some, some work for us um, and a lot of that comes from fishing charters where we fly at uh, tourists directly to their boat, be it in Arnhem Land in the top end or over in the Kimberley um, and that saves the boat having to steam sometimes up to like 18 hours to get to um, a town that has an airport with a kind of RPT or regular service um, that these guys can access. So to be able to to fly in on a flying boat straight to the river, it's completely changed. I think a lot of the fishing companies that, that do those fishing charters, and we're talking about week-long fishing charters here with, you know, ADM-8s uh, and live aboard boat. Um, so that's been great fun. And then also some coastal camps. Uh, the one we've been operating to most notably was... Uh, Kimberley Coastal Camp um, located near Mitchell Plateau over in the Kimberley there and um, dropping off some guests to, uh, to their location, which has completely changed the way they operate as well because they now have a direct flight from Darwin, which they didn't previously have. So to get there previously was quite a mission. So um, yeah, we've, we've changed the way they operate as well. So yeah, obviously with COVID, um, it's changed everything again. Uh, we've really lost all of our charter work pretty much this year. Um, we were looking at doing some safaris a lot of people use the term safari for African uh, exploring of the wildlife but um, uh, we call our little four-night over trip overnight uh, flight through the Kimberley region a a safari and um, it goes to some of the most isolated uh, beautiful camps in those areas and uh, we had about six of those lined up this year which would have been amazing but um, yeah hopefully next year we can come back better than ever and um ramp up some more charter work and, and go from there.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Eh? I mean, good old Jenna sort of um, seen, seen the market for that. But again, it just goes back to the, how amazing that mallard is. Eh? I mean, how many machines can you – I mean, how many people can you put in that thing?
1: Uh, we can take up to 13 passengers uh, total for uh, all operations. But um, generally, for the kind of length of flying that we're doing for for a charter, we're kind of – find that about eight is a good number because, you know, a lot of these charters have got a lot of gear with them um, and they're going to some pretty isolated places where you don't have fuel. So you've generally got to have return fuel, uh, which is pretty incredible because, um, you know, you're generally flying about three and a half to four hours from Darwin out and back. Uh, you've got eight people on board and bags to a remote location and you can do that without a refuelling stop. So, um Yeah, it's pretty incredible what that machine can do. And that's why they're still around today is because we have to fly such long distances and take big heavy loads. Um, Not really any other airplane being manufactured today um, can do that at this stage.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I I sort of have that conversation with passengers most days about the Beaver. They say, you know, why are you using a 1961 Beaver designed in 1947? And it's like, well, you know, short of going and buying a, a $4 million, Turbine, there's nothing else that will do the job and and in the Mallard's case, I mean is there a replacement what do you, what do you do?
1: Well, I think yeah, one of the only real replacements at the moment would probably be the albatross, which um, then you've got to kind of look at it and go, well, it's never been turbine um, modified. Well, it has been once. there's there was one made, but it didn't really kind of take off. Um, you know it's it's still an old aeroplane that's not in, manuf- you know, not being manufactured anymore. So I don't really see it being a replacement for the Mallard at this stage. Um, the Dornier Star is another one that's kind of in production or trying to get in production at the moment. It's been around for a long time trying to get um, produced. But I, I mean, even then, it's, I think it's still only, it's less max takeoff weight than us and its total payload's less as well. So um, I don't see anything replacing the Mallard for this operation at this stage. Yeah.
0: Oh, and, uh, and if that thing flies as, uh, as well as it looks, it will be pretty bloody awful, really, wouldn't uh, it?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. The other, the Sea Star. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah a, the Sea Star. Yeah. Horrible bit of kit. Yeah. Oh, that's cool, mate. Yeah. And so. I've heard you say before that, um, or one of the other podcasts probably, that your engineers, I mean, they can't get parts for these mallards now. They're, they're manufacturing parts from scratch.
1: Yeah, so a lot of the time we have to basically send parts away to um, people who design. I don't really know too much about it, but um, yeah, send these parts away with the blueprints and another part to get them remanufactured from scratch. So um, that's a huge issue we have is, is parts. Um, you know, You can't just go back to the um, the original manufacturer there and, and and tell them to whip a few parts up for you so you have to kind of um, be a bit creative with all this stuff and obviously it's very hard for airplanes to continue flying with with dodgy parts so you have to make sure everything's by the book and by the book means a lot of money and yeah so we're lucky that we're backed by a very good company uh, being past Paley and and I think one of the other success stories or the reason why the the mallard is so successful is because it's not, it's not, you know, your, your tourism-operated airplane out there that only, su- only survives on that tourism money, you know. It's a big company that uses these airplanes basically like their Toyota Hilux, you know, to, um, to get the job done um, for the company, you know. So I think that's the reason why they're still around today as well.
0: Yeah, amazing. And we could talk about the Mallards for the next uh, four hours, but we've um, covered quite a lot of stuff on the Mallards with, with some of the other podcasts. It's been pretty interesting, especially talking to um, some of those older fellows that have flown them on the west coast of um, Canada and the States and that, eh?
1: Yeah, exactly. No, there's been some awesome yeah. stories so far. And uh, don't worry, Shane, there's going to be some more people coming well, on to I tell do... some uh, some stories, yeah. for
0: sure. Good, good, because right, I do worry. Um, <laughs> now, um, Seaplane Pilots Association of Australia, you're... Part of that association now? Well, sorry, you're, you're, you're on the board, are you? Or?
1: Yeah, so um, the end of the financial year in Australia there, they had their annual general meeting, which was just about a month ago, and um, uh, I put my hand up to be on the general committee, uh, which was... Uh, so they, we've got a president, vice president, secretary and treasurer, and then five committee members. We're not as big as the SPAR or Seaplane Pilots Association in, Australia, in uh, America, but um, we've got about... Uh, I think about... 400 members or something like that it's uh i'm just a committee member at this stage but um you know i'm helping out with some of the social media stuff and uh, i'm going to be getting on our president in the next kind of few months once he's kind of settled he's he's the new president um so it's his first time in this role so um i'll kind of be able to share a bit more about what we do in that uh, role but as a general we we're kind of supporting seaplane flying in australia we uh, promote safe flying of seaplanes. we work with uh, national parks and and waterways uh, offices, basically uh, people involved in those areas, to make sure that we have access for private and and sometimes commercial operators to to operate into the certain areas in Australia. Yeah, like I said, I'll get um, David Gears on in the future and and kind of uh, share a bit more details about what we do in the organisation. But um, yeah, it's it's really cool to be involved in that. Um, I've always been well aware of. Their presence in Australia, and it's kind of really cool to be, for the first time in my career, um, be on on a board of a, a committee for a, for an association. So, yeah, very exciting times for that.
0: Yeah, that's cool, mate. Well, it's good to see guys like yourself, South, doing it. And I remember reading your, um, well, I listened to the podcast and read your presentation on the Wheels Up landings, and just to get that um, promotion of that sort of information um, out there and, and presented to all your your listeners, and and for the seaplane. Um, association and get it out there it's pretty valuable stuff eh? and, and when it's presented by sort of um, you know knowledgeable people, well respected people in the industry it's um, I think it has it's far more impact. I know I- every landing mate I, uh, I do my puffer uh, yep. that you taught me so um, <laughs> yeah yeah some, some good info coming out there. Keep it up.
1: No thanks man it was um yeah that was, so that was a presentation I did last year um, at that Seaplane Pilot Association um, annual kind of meeting that they have and you know, a lot of the Seaplane Pilots Association is made up of, um, of private pilots um, and, it, and I think they really appreciate having some more experienced um, you know, commercial pilots out there and, and kind of sharing their knowledge. So I had a lot of people that night come up to me and express that they really appreciated um, that presentation and, and they're going to consider you know, the wheels more prudently, I guess, in the future of their flying. So it's good to hear that kind of feedback.
0: The big one for me was in, in in your in your podcast. You know, at that presentation, you said, you know, who, who thinks there's going to be more wheels up landings in the future? And, and presumably, everyone put their hands up. And, and you said, well, you know, who thinks it's going to be them? And that uh, that's a pretty powerful, um, powerful thing, and get you get you thinking and and, and uh, taking it all a bit more seriously. Yeah, it's good.
1: Yeah, well, that's it. And, and and you have to question yourself that because you know, even like I said in the podcast as well. Just because I fly the mallard doesn't mean it's not going to happen to me. And I think there's, a, there's potentially a lot of pilots out there who think that they, because they've got a lot of experience flying seaplanes, that um, accidents aren't going to happen. Well, so, you know, what, what, why isn't it going to be you? Why is, what are you doing to proactively make sure that you're not going to be the next guy? Because it does happen. I mean, the state's had four wheels down water landings in like the last six weeks. Um, two, apparently, were on the same lake 10 days apart. And we're talking about turbine-engined seaplanes here. It was a Beaver turbine and a, a Kodiak, I believe. Um, yeah. These are not just private pilots that are doing them in their little, you know, uh, sea rays or icons or anything, you know. These are big machines that carry a lot of people and there should be some more consideration. And, you know, one of the other effects of, of as well that I didn't even mention about that in that podcast was it affects the whole industry because now insurance companies are going to be raising the costs of insurance for amphibian seaplanes and just seaplanes in general probably because oh, these yeah. accidents keeps occurring. So, yeah, And it shouldn't happen. I'm just passionate about the fact that it should not happen. If you can do your checks properly before landing, there is no reason why anyone should do any landing on the water without at least going through minimum one probably two checks they should be checking that gear twice before every landing not just on the water and making sure that that gear is in the right position because you know and like I said as well um you can tell it's passionate of mine um, yeah, yeah, for sure. like I said um, you sh- if you're not if you're not having nightmares about a gear down water landing like there is something wrong with you you need to really look at yourself because I used to have nightmares literally about <laughs> landing wheels down in the water and it was something that really scared me because it can happen so easily and just like that you go from being fat dumb and happy life is good with this perfectly serviceable airplane and you're upside down fighting for your life so yeah um it's uh, oh, yeah. hopefully we can yeah. get that message out to more and more people
0: oh that's incredible yeah I've, I've got a friend who um he was coming to land on the land luckily with, with the wheels up and it was his wife sitting in the back of this thing said mate yeah you know your wheels are your wheels are up and he said no no it's all right they're, they're where they're supposed to be and wife kind of sat there and shut up and then in a couple of minutes later she said again look I'm sure it's not right and and it took you know twice for him to break out of whatever thought process he was in and and realize that he had you know configured wrong for landing so um yeah it's uh it's an interesting one
1: yeah absolutely and I think after takeoff is one of the most critical stages uh we all talk about kind of checking the gear before landing but if if pilots can make sure that their gear is, is up after takeoff, that kind of solves 80% of the issues. Uh, you know, like I said in that podcast, 80% of them were after a land to take So, work on getting your gear up, work on that flow um, to get your gear up straight away after, uh, after takeoff.
0: For sure. Now, moving on from that and sort of towards the towards the end of the, the podcast, because yeah, we could we could go on forever, mate. But <laughs> what what's what's aside from um the amphibious stuff, what's the best advice you think you've ever been given about flying seaplanes?
1: Best advice um I think that, that that everything changes so dramatically all the time. You know, there's never there's never one kind of solution to solving an issue with with float plane flying. So Um, you know, you've always got to keep your wits about you and look out for, for different threats in the environment or, you know, in the cockpit or, or, you know, just in a whole day's flying. So I think probably just always keeping your wits about you. A piece of advice, I guess, that you could, um, suggest in one kind of sentence, I guess, was one that still stands out to me today was there was a bit of a, at one company I worked for, there was a bit of a, um, streak of, low flybys uh, within the company and um, I remember the the chief pilot said you don't uh, people are already excited to be on a seaplane they don't need to be to go out there and do low flying to be extra excited you um, you're only increasing the risk for no reason they're already excited on the airplane you don't need to do anything extra I think that was a pretty good piece of advice
0: for sure yeah you yeah, know that is solid yeah yeah okay and um so you were given that what what would be the best advice you'd give to a young fella starting out you know he's he's just got his uh his first seaplane job um you know he's flying a, a 206 or a, or a 185 and in, in the back blocks somewhere no, you know not a lot of guidance and, and he's out there doing it what's you know a, a real sound bit of advice that will keep him out of trouble for the first couple hundred hours
1: probably just never get complacent i think um float flying it can bite you in so many different areas so make sure you're always being aware and never get lazy Uh, always be on top of what you're doing Um, don't try and cut corners and don't be complacent about what you're doing float plane world is so dynamic compared to being on runways and yeah just uh, you never get lazy and, and really take in everything that you're doing
0: yeah, yeah, solid. Yeah, I think in twenty something years of of flying, and especially bush and float flying, um, and, and it's a hard thing to do. But it's to listen to your listen to your gut, I've found you know if if so, quite often if, if you're just not sure that's your answer you know what i mean if you have to think if you have to think about something that much then perhaps the answer is just don't do that
1: yeah exactly and, that, and that's yeah. the float world has so many options available to you in different in different areas you know different ways to take off different places to take off so if you think you haven't backtracked a lake long enough or something well then just go back a little bit further or you know if you think that's not enough fuel or something like that i'm sure you fuel things better than that but um, you know, just add a little bit more or whatever. But um, oh, yeah. like yeah. I said, gut feeling is definitely something to uh, to consider.
0: Yeah, 100%. I remember years ago the boss telling me, you know, he'd been flying the, flying the 185s, you know, hard in and out of the bush and taking heavy loads out of these strips. And one day just it just occurred to him that rather than do one overloaded trip, why not just do two trips, charge the client more and, you know, you're making more money and you're doing it safely.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: It, uh, it stuck with me, yeah. So, what's what's the future for the mallard guy? Then you've got the dream job. You've you've got a, a family. A we family starting there. You know the the stable airline job is that uh, on the horizon for that mallard guy?
1: Gee mate, I don't know whether um, there'll be many airline jobs going for a while at this current current rate. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, exactly. Like we, we've got um, we've got our second kid on the way. Um, only just a very quick turn around from having the first one so um yeah life's pretty full on uh in the background at the moment um but yeah i'm just i'm absolutely loving where i am at the moment darwin is although it's bloody hot all the time it is a pretty cool place to grow up a family you know and and have that family lifestyle and uh we aren't really affected by COVID at all in this state at the moment which has been incredible hopefully it stays that way um but yeah i think we'll just keep kicking around mate and um i'm not sure about the whole airline thing just yet but you can never write something off you know i left float planes once to fly ifr um i think that's another thing is just, you always just you never know what's around the corner and i like to see what's uh happening in the horizon but yeah like i said i'm i'm pretty happy where i am right now
0: yeah good on you mate yeah i, I think there's a few a uh, few listeners that are pretty envious mate and yeah, I've tried a bit of airline stuff and a bit of, bit of other stuff. And, mate, I, I can't think of a better job, mate. IFR, VFR, twin turbine safety, flying boat, you know, plenty of variety. It's it's pretty epic, mate. So, uh, yeah, don't, don't get running off too quick, eh? <laughs>
1: not, not that's not the plan. Yeah.
0: Right, so um, everyone wants to know, um, I've got my pen ready, how do I get a job flying the Mellor? And what do I need?
1: Um you probably have to come to Darwin and and get a gun and shoot one of us i think um it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty hard to get a job when when people aren't leaving so yeah it it's one of those places i think where they you know how people say you have to wait for someone to die before you there's another job going um we do have a pretty well set crew at the moment who are nice and chill and happy with families and houses and everyone's pretty you know content at where they are at the moment so I can't see us hiring in the next um, few years unless there's some sort of miracle happens with with work and, and we we really pick up a heap of charter work that that kind of makes us need an extra pilot. But um, you never know. We'll see what happens. Um, as in terms of actually hiring guys, um, we're kind of like most companies. We just we you know even though we're like you said the IFR the multi-engine, you know, we actually really don't look for guys who have any IFR time or any multi-engine that's got nothing to do with even hull flying it's basically just if you've got your instrument rating ticked off you've got some good float experience and you've taken the time out to do your ATPL subjects you pretty much got a chance to come into the company there and once again I think um, if you're interested in flying the Mallard well then make sure that you come and visit us and say hello and that's always going to be helpful when it comes to to picking a guy is knowing the guy who's uh, underneath your nose know, most often uh, is generally the guy who'll get the job. But um,
0: okay, well, I, I, I sense a glimmer of hope there, so um, I'll keep my fingers crossed there. Yeah. Well, um, mate, we'll um, we'll keep keep moving over to your favourite section of this uh, the the podcast, um, the splash and dash. So it's a lot like a hit and run, but it's it's a splash <laughs> and a dash. Now, I don't want long-winded answers. Okay, just need to be sure. Just the first thing that comes is that, to mind, is that mate. The
1: crowd, is it the crowd feeling that all my answers, all, all everyone's answers are too long? Should I cut oh, I'll, I'll,
0: I'll, I'll give you a bit of a debrief on what people are saying. Okay, uh, cool. but no Um Favourite seaplane other than the mallard?
1: Beaver. Is that short enough?
0: We're talking about the seaplane, aren't we? Yeah, mate. Yeah, yep. okay. Right. Um, would you rather fly a beaver or a caravan on floats?
1: Right now, I think I'd rather fly beaver
0: right. it was a rugged as day, really rough day out there, pretty choppy, gnarly squally winds. It's getting dark, you're low on gas. What machine would you want to be in?
1: It's a great question. I might have to use this one mate. Can you write some of my uh <laughs> splash and dash questions for me that was that was a really good one. um probably just a mallard. They're super stable in the air. You've got the twin engine uh safety as you mentioned, can go eye far at night time, so last light doesn't matter. Do shoot instrument approaches. Yeah, happy days. I'll choose yeah. a Mallard.
0: Yeah, pretty awesome, mate. Yeah. Uh, Beaver or 206?
1: I think because I flew the 206 before the Beaver and it's been a long time, I'd, I'd like to jump back into 206 again.
0: Okay, Beaver or Mallard? <laughs>
1: um, Mallard.
0: Beaver or modified Beaver with the uh, advanced wing, tech wing? Beaver. Okay, good. Good. You can
1: tell you, you're flying a beaver at the moment.
0: <laughs> just a little bit.
1: Everything revolves around the beaver.
0: Life revolves around beaver, Dan. Um, <laughs> best experience in a seaplane, your best day at work, a memory that will just stick with you forever. You you were sitting there just going, I have cracked this.
1: One memory that comes to mind straight away was flying Slash from the Guns N' Roses <laughs> in the caravan from Hamilton Island to Hayman Island and then landing on the water there and uh, his wife screamed a little bit as we touched down. Um so it's pretty cool to say I made Slash's wife scream. <laughs> uh, but um
0: it all comes back to being I
1: think <laughs> I think probably um going solo in the Mallard as a captain. That was pretty cool. I bet. Yeah. And we did we did a cruise ship scenics out at Curry Bay um and it got pretty pretty rough and windy and um had to actually do some valley approaches into from over the land into the end of the bay there which is pretty tight and um it was you know some pretty full-on weather and and wind and kind of short landing areas and and i think that was when it was really like yep this is cool i'm really having this is an epic time
0: yeah, yeah, that's cool. And there's nothing like being the bosses. You know, the buck stops with you. You you tend to pay a bit more attention, and and consequently, when it comes off well, you you know, you, you feel like you've you've done a pretty good job. It's a nice feeling, eh?
1: Yeah, well, that's it. And and we've you know, as a, a multi crew, the FO actually has limitations on what they can do, and it makes sense. Even if they're the most skilled pilot around, um, in the end, it, it it falls on the captain. So. Um, there are certain conditions where we have to take over as the captain and that was certainly one of those days and it was you know that's what I mean it was it was epic to just be like sorry this is specifically captain only kind of weather I don't want to sound like arrogant or cocky in that but um, I'm going to have to do the flying for now Um, and and kind of yeah really just kind of putting that machine in the spots you wanted to to be in kind of thing and, um, really manhandling it. Um, yeah, that was, that was great fun. Yeah, that's
0: pretty cool. And the last one, mate, if, if you could jump, jump in the mallard with a bunch of mates and, and uh, a few green cans, where would you go for the day? You don't have to pay for it. You can just head off.
1: Um, I'd love to just go back to the Sundays, and like I did, luckily enough last year with the Rathmines trip, but it was terrible weather, but I'd love to just, um, take that thing around the Sundays, go to the reef, go snorkeling, take it to the beach, have a few green cans on the beach there with you or a few other mates, and uh, that would be pretty epic, I reckon. Yeah.
0: Well, mate, I'm a starter, so um, let's, uh, let's actually <laughs> make the that FO. happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could be the, or, uh, the uh, what do you call them, the servant, the, the dolly trolley? The trolley dolly? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the dolly trolley—that's an interesting trolley. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. I've probably got enough float time to be uh, your flight attendant. So we'll um, we'll work on that one, mate. But um, hey, uh, thanks for everything, mate. Like uh, we got in touch on Instagram a few years ago. I remember emailing you uh, or just messaging you on Instagram something random about I think seaplane flying in Australia. I, I was looking at getting into floats, and and you were really helpful, and and you have continued to be be uh, super helpful and um, you know knowledgeable and and always free free with that knowledge, and and, um, and these podcasts have been great for the whole industry, I think. So thank you very much for everything, and uh, thank you for allowing me to interview you on your podcast, and uh, thanks for the <laughs> listeners for coming on the step. Now, you can contact Dan at – go ahead, Dan.
1: That Mallard, at or – Find me on Instagram, as you mentioned, at that Mallard guy and say hello. I love saying hello to anyone who's interested in flying seaplanes or even interested in the mallard. Drop our message in and uh, we'll have a chat.
0: Sounds great, mate. Hey, well, um, good luck with number two. And I hope you guys keep busy enough out there. If you're not busy, we've got plenty of work for you up here, mate. (laughs) (laughs)
1: All right, thanks, mate. Thanks very much, Shane, for being a great host. And uh, if ever I want to pass on the reins to anyone, I think – yeah, you can be my um, second-in-command any day. Yeah, for sure, man.
0: assistant director.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Okay, we'll write that down. Perhaps we could just put it on the, the Spotify there. <laughs>
1: assistant director.
0: Great. All right, hey, thanks a lot, Dan, and uh, take care. Cheers, mate. And that's the show for today, folks. Now it's time to share the episode Tell a Friend and Review with Apple Podcasts. Your normal host, Dan, is back with your next episode. And here's a little taste.
1: So my wife and I got together in 1997, and we had an
0: albatross, uh, a couple of albatrosses in Fort Lauderdale that were flying with private owners.
1: We had a couple of mallards and
0: a couple of juices.
1: And I said, you know, my long-term goal, uh, when we, we go down this this road, said, I'd love to get married in an albatross, but I want to make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into. Uh, so we need to go fly one.
0: But until next time, everyone, thanks very much for coming on the step.